0: where it feels difficult to be thankful, and this morning's topic is thanks for punishing my good behavior. I was thinking about just verses that are about Thanksgiving in the Bible, and pretty quickly, uh, 1 Peter 2, verse 19 came to mind, where Peter says, this is thankworthy. Like Peter says, here is something that's worthy of thanks. Here's something you should be thankful for. And then he goes on to say, here's what it is. If a man, for good conscience toward God, endure grief, suffering wrongfully. All right, so here's what he says. Here's something to be thankful for if you, with good conscience toward God, okay, a guy who's doing the right thing for the right reason, suffers grief, pain, suffering wrongfully. He doesn't deserve it. Be thankful for that. I don't know about you. I read that, and I think, like, that, that's kind of strange. Like, that's counterintuitive to me, okay? I, I read that and think, like, was that a typo? Like, shouldn't, shouldn't there be a not in there? This is not think-worthy, you know, if, if a man with <laughs> good conscience uh, endures grief and suffers wrongfully. But that's what it says. It says that is think-worthy. Like, you're supposed to sit at the Thanksgiving table and say, if this is you, you know what, I've been living for God, loving God, trying to follow Jesus with all my heart, and the finances are just in a mess. My health is on the decline. Thank God for that. Right? That's, that's what it's saying. How do you do that? How, how, how do you be thankful in those moments? I, I think perhaps Genesis 39 will help us. Genesis 39 is the story of a man who, for good conscience toward God, suffered wrongfully and endured a lot of grief because of it, and it's us continuing the story of Joseph. We saw last week of Joseph and his family that was dysfunctional, and, and how they uh, put him in a pit, they sell him into slavery, and Genesis 39 picks the story back up, and we're going to read this chapter this morning. So it's a decent chunk of, of scripture to read, so hang with me. We're going to read down through this chapter. Let's start in verse number one. It says, Joseph was brought down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him out of the hands of the Ishmaelites, which had brought him down thither. So naturally, you read that verse, and you're like, well, these guys aren't doing great. Like, the stage is set with people, you know, buying humans, selling them, other people, you know, wanting to trade them. Like, that's obviously not good. Verse 2 But the Lord was with Joseph, and he was a prosperous man, and he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. And his master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord made all that he did to prosper in his hand. And Joseph found grace in his sight, and he served him, and he made him overseer over his house. All that he had, he put into his hand. And it came to pass from the time that he had made him overseer in the house over all that he had, that the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. And the blessing of the Lord was upon all that he had in the house and in the field." So you get the sense that Joseph has like this Midas touch that despite the circumstances, God's with him. God is is, is blessing him in this scenario. Verse 6, and he left all that he had in Joseph's hand and he knew not what he had, save the bread which he did eat. And that's a statement that this guy was so willing to trust in Joseph that he's like, I don't even need to know what's in the bank account. I don't even know. I trust you, man. Just take care of it. Okay? And it says this in in the end of verse 6. Joseph was a goodly person and well-favored. You know what I'm saying? Joseph was a good guy. He's a good guy. Verse number seven comes along. It came to pass after these sayings that his master's wife cast her eyes upon Joseph, and she said, lie with me. That's what I call the direct approach, okay? She, she you know, she's brazen. She's shameless. She's aggressive. She knows what she wants, and, and she's after it. Verse number 8, but he refused and said unto his master's wife, and here's his reasoning, great sound logic in this moment. Behold, my master wadeth not or knoweth not what is with me in the house, and he's committed all that he hath to my hand. There is none greater than, in his house than I. Neither hath he kept back anything from me but thee. Like he's, he's given me like everything, but he didn't give me you. Like that wasn't part of the deal here. Because thou art his wife. That makes sense. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? So he says, look, I I, I feel like I owe some loyalty to Potiphar. I'm not going to sin against him, but I also owe owe loyalty to God. Like, I'm not going to sin against God. And there's, in this moment, tremendous character. Like, it's saying that Joseph was a goodly man. I mean, This is being lived out. Great character, doing the right thing. And you might think to yourself like, man, glad that's over. You know, he he dodged that, refused temptation, and it'll go away forever. No, verse 10, it came to pass as she spake to Joseph day by day, that he hearkened not unto her to lie by her or to be with her. So she won't take no for an answer. She's not going to be ignored. She's not going to be refused. Day after day, she presses Joseph, and she was driven and determined to, to have what was being kept from her, So finally, she resorts to setting a trap for Joseph, verse 11. It came to pass about this time that Joseph went into the house to do his business, and there was none of the men of the house there within. So the house is empty. They're alone. And she caught him by his garment, saying, lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand, and he fled and got him out. Now, this is the part of the story where you just want to give Joseph a standing ovation, right? You just want to say, good for you, acting the right way. You know, if, if I didn't know what was coming next in the story, I would guess that the next few verses we're going to read that God saw the impeccable character of Joseph and rewarded him and blessed him and caused a Chick-fil-A to be built next to his house and just was so generous to him. Like I would expect something like that to be next. But what is next is verse 13. It came to pass... When she saw that he left his garment in her hand and was fled forth, that she called unto the men of the house, and she spake unto them, and she said, See, he Potiphar hath brought in this Hebrew to mock us. He came in unto me to lie with me, and I cried with a loud voice. And it came to pass when he he heard that I lifted up my voice and I cried, that he left his garment with me and he fled. He ran out of here. He got him out. And she laid up his garment by her until his lord came home. So she tells all the guys wants to get the story going fast. But now here comes her husband home. She spake unto him according to these words, saying, verse 17, The Hebrew servant which thou hast brought unto us, he came in unto mock me. Then it came to pass as I lifted up my voice and cried that he left his garment with me, and he fled out. So she flat out lies. She slanders Joseph. She accuses him of rape. And I read the, the words on the page, and, like, my heart goes out to Joseph I think, like, Lord, if there is ever a time to reward this man, like, reward him now, acquit him of the wrong, prove his innocence. Please tell me Joseph had a nanny cam. He's like, ha ha, look, I'll show you. Like, please do something to make sure that this goes his way. Verse 19 It came to pass when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spake unto him, saying, After this manner did thy servant to me, that his wrath was kindled. It makes sense. I would dare say if your wife told you something like this, you'd be ticked too. Verse 20, so Joseph's master took him, put him into the prison, a place where the king's prisoners were bound, and he was there in the prison. So here's this young man. Chapter 37, he obeys his dad, and he's hated for it, and they throw him in a pit, and they, throw him in, and they sell him into slavery. Chapter 39, he does what's right. He's honorable. And not only is he slandered for it, he's punished for it. I would say it this way. Here is a man who for good conscience towards God endures grief and he suffers wrongfully. That's Joseph. This is the sort of scenario that Peter says in these moments, be thankful. How? Like How is that possible in moments like this to be thankful? I want to give you four principles this morning that will hopefully help us in the middle of suffering, in the middle of enduring grief wrongfully, to be thankful to God. Principle number one is the punishment principle. The principle is this, not all of life's negatives are punishments. And you need to know this because we're taught from an early stage in life, be good, good will come, be bad, bad will come. And that is reinforced to us Over and over and over and over. Be good and you'll get smiles from your parents. Be bad, you'll get punishments, right? Uh, Be good and do your homework, you'll probably get a better grade. Be bad and don't do all your homework, you'll get a bad grade. Right now, Christmas season, right? Be good, Santa will give you toys. Be bad, he will fill your stocking with coal. Like that is inculcated in us from a very early age that this is the way it should work. And when life doesn't work this way, we get really messed up. When we do good and good doesn't come to us, it tinkers with our emotions. When we are nice to them and in them, instead of being nice and friendly back to us, they're mean, they're angry, they bully, that doesn't make sense to us. When, when I do what's right and I'm the company man and I show up and I'm loyal and I'm there on time, I'm there early, I work hard, and now you're going to hose me and take away the promised pension plan, that messes with us. When we stand for righteousness, but people mock us because of it, generally, that doesn't sit well with us. And we start to think this to ourselves. You know what? I was good. Good should have happened. Why would this happen? And then we start to ask the question that is so pervasive in our culture. Why would God let bad things happen to good people? Ever heard that? Right? That, what's at the heart of that? I did good, so I should get good. You know, I, I did what was right, so, so something, you know, I should get a windfall. That, that should happen. The problem with that question is that it's an unbiblical hatching of your imagination. <laughs> that question is based on the presupposition that God owes you good if you do what is right. And that's not true. Amen. You just don't find it in the Bible. When you say, why do good things happen or bad things happen to good people, What you're saying is that God somehow owes me a life of comfort, a life of ease. He should cause the dominoes to tilt in my favor if I behave myself. You're assuming God owes you a comfortable life. But the truth of the scriptures is this, that we have a loving Heavenly Father who created us, who upholds us, who sustains us. Every second of every single day, therefore, we owe it to him to love him, to obey him, to serve him all of the time with eager willingness. And yet, if we're halfway honest with ourselves, time after time, we resent his interference in our life, we reject his authority, we reject his truth, we continually decide that we're wiser than he is and that we should do it our own way, we begrudge his rules, and and we repeatedly thwart his loving authority. And so the truth is, we owe him everything, but oftentimes give him so little, yet we still think he owes us but God does not owe us. God doesn't owe you. God doesn't owe me. God doesn't owe us. He doesn't. If you do good, you should out of love for him, but not because your promise that good is, is going to come your way all the time. Jesus gives this, this classic example in Luke 13. It's, it's a little known story, but he, he mentions it and he says in Luke 13, about kind of a modern event that had happened. We don't know a lot about the event other than what he says, but apparently it was kind of like the talk of the town. Because he says in Luke 13, those 18 upon whom the tower in Siloam fell and slew them. So he says, hey, remember that tower over in Siloam? He's in Jerusalem right now. Remember that, that it fell over and it like killed 18 people? Like the boulders fell on their head and it killed them? Remember them? He says, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? You think that happened to them because they were especially bad? You think it's just because they, I mean, they, they really were evil. That's why the tower fell on their head. He says in verse 5, I tell you, nay. No. But except you repent, ye shall all likewise perish. What's he saying? Did the tower fall on them because there were worse sinners? No. So let me turn the tables. Maybe the tower should be falling on your head. Maybe you should look up. He says it wasn't about that they did more evil than the other. This this wasn't some, some sort of punishment that came their way. So don't act like a comfortable life is a rite of passage from God if you show up to church or if you read your Bible or if you pray or if you stand for righteousness. The reality is that pain and suffering come our way and God doesn't owe you a comfortable life. And I understand that it can be deeply disappointing to realize that at first, but ultimately it's really good medicine and it's healthy. Because if you don't understand that, then anytime something negative happens in your life, you'll try to do a one-to-one correlation. What did I do wrong, so why is God punishing me? That This negative happened, so naturally it's a lightning bolt. God must be after me. And to be clear, there are times when that's true. The Bible tells us very plainly that whom the Lord loves, he chastens, that if God loves you, that he will chasten you, that out of a heart of love, he will want to win you back and bring you back and put you back on track, that he will punish you at times out of a heart of love. But it's also very clear that that is not always why negative things happen to us. There is a category called suffering, and that's when I don't do wrong, I do right, I live like Joseph, and yet bad things happen to me. You have to know that Joseph was not doing anything wrong when he got thrown into a pit. It wasn't a punishment. He wasn't doing anything wrong when he gets thrown into prison. It's not a punishment. It doesn't feel fair to us, but it's what it is. It's him doing right and him suffering wrongfully because of it. Principle two. Okay, not only is it that you need to know that, that it's not always a punishment, but you also need to know the purpose principle, and that is that suffering is never for nothing. The biblical idea of suffering is that there are times in your life and my life where pain will enter, and this pain is not an accident. It did not slip by God unnoticed. He's sovereign, and he could have changed it, but the pain is there. And we're left wondering, well, why in the world would this happen then? Why would he make it this way to where I I want to have a child, but my womb is barren? I want the business to go forward, and I'm going to be generous with the money that comes from the business, but it seems like I'm constantly in the red. Why would he let these things happen to me? Why would he let my health slip? Why would he let that person die? Why would he let bad things happen to good people? Why? The biblical answer is that true suffering is a channel for the grace of God and the glory of God to be displayed in your life. And we don't like to tune to that channel, I know. But the reality is we should not resist it. According to the Bible, we should actually be thankful for it. That all of our suffering, there is a divine intent behind it. It's never for nothing. It's never senseless. You say, well, what's the divine intent? I'm not God, I can't tell you. I can't tell you what, what the purpose is for that suffering or for you suffering for your wrongdoing or s- it seems like God's punishing my good behavior. I can tell you biblically there are examples where suffering is used to bring someone closer to Christ. I can tell you biblically there's an example where it results in the faith of someone else and people come into a relationship with Jesus because of suffering, I can tell you that it could serve as an example to those that will follow you. I can tell you that it could mature you and, and build godly character in your life. I can tell you that it can bring glory to God. There's a list of reasons why it could be, but I don't know for sure. All I do know for sure is that it's never for nothing. And this is ultimately where Joseph finds himself later on in life. The, the grand climax to the story of Joseph is Genesis 50, which you've probably heard if you've been around church for any length of time, where Joseph looks back years after the pit, years after the prison, and he says in Genesis 50, "'As for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it for good, to bring it to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive.'" Where Joseph can look and say, look, God had a plan for this. God had a purpose in this. God had a design to all of this. There was a reason he did this, and I can see it now that it was actually to save people and to be in this spot that God worked this. This is what David attests in Psalm 119 when David says, it is good for me that I have been afflicted. Time out. What? What? It's good for me that I've been afflicted. I don't know many Christians that talk like that. Why, David? That I might learn thy statutes. In that pain, you taught me more, God. This is what C.S. Lewis said in reference to this verse. He said that God whispers to us in our pleasures, and he speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. David says, You taught me through this. Job attested to this when Job said in chapter 23 that God knows the way that I take, and when he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. The truth is sometimes we're forged by fire. And the way that God shapes those he loves oftentimes is through suffering. I read a story a couple weeks ago about this man named Gary who was at a zoo, and he just so happened to be there when a mama giraffe was giving birth to a baby giraffe. This is something I've never seen. Our family, we're members of the Pittsburgh Zoo, and we love to take our, our kids there. Uh, we do, I don't know, probably close to 10 times a year. So I know that zoo inside and out, and there's the giraffe. So I've never seen a giraffe give birth. I'd kind of like to, though, if I could. But he tells a story of this baby giraffe, first of all, coming out of its mother, which, like, that's a 10-foot drop. It's, he said it was just kind of remarkable to watch this. And then this baby giraffe is, is lying on the ground. And Mama Giraffe, about 60 seconds after the baby's birth, walks up to it and kicks it. And not like, hey, are you alive down there? Like, kicks it, like sends it sprawling, like head over heels tumbling. And apparently the baby got the message that it wasn't supposed to be on the ground, but it should stand up. So the baby tried to, you know, take its God-given stilts and and get up, you know, on itself, but it, it wobbles and it fell over. So mom waited about 60 seconds. She walked up to it again and she kicked it again. Hard. And this time, it actually tried to stand up and it did. It got up on all fours. And to Gary's surprise, Mama Giraffe walked over to now standing baby and kicked it again. Down and Gary said, at this point, I'm I'm like befuddled. Like you have a deranged draft like I don't know what you which where you got this thing like this this messed up so he went to the zookeeper and said like what is going on and the zookeeper said mom knows that in the wild that baby's life depends on it being able to get up quickly and keep up with the pack if a predator comes and she wants it to remember how to get up but the zookeeper said in other words was There was a loving intention behind those kicks. She's trying to help baby giraffe live. I don't know if you feel like God has kicked you to the ground. I don't know if you feel like God has kicked you while you're down. Perhaps you do. I can tell you this. There's a loving intention behind those kicks. I'm not saying he hasn't kicked you to the ground. I'm not saying he hasn't kicked you while you're down. All I'm saying is suffering is never for nothing. And that pain that has come your way, there's a loving intent behind it that's there to mature you, to help you, and you have to trust in that. Principle number three, the presence principle. And this you just have to know. You have to marry this truth to your heart anytime you're going through darkness or through a valley, and that's that God's with you. This is so massaged into the story of Joseph. When you look at chapter number 39 you find that here's Joseph going into Egypt, bought by Potiphar and verse number 2 says the Lord was with Joseph. Verse number 3 says that his master saw that the Lord was with him. Then you get to this moment where it seems like it crumbles again and Joseph is punished for his good behavior again and he's in prison and verse 21 said the Lord was with Joseph and showed him mercy. Verse 23 said that because the Lord was with him. So you see each and every time you get to these moments that seem like the pit or the prison that here's Joseph and it tells us that God's with him and our tendency I want you to notice because our tendency even as strong mature Christians can be that when we find ourselves in the proverbial pit or prison that we find ourselves thinking does anybody care like has God abandoned me does he even know that I'm down here why would he let this happen to me does he care and you have to know like emphatically 100% yes, he does care. It's not that he's not there. It's not that he doesn't care for you. He, He knows where you are. I'll even do you one better. He's there with you. The beautiful promise of Christianity, at least one of them, is that we'll never be alone. That Jesus ascended, but he left us the spirit to be with him, his presence here with us, and that we will spend eternity with him, that he doesn't forget us, he doesn't abandon us, he doesn't forsake us, he doesn't just take his hands off the steering wheel for a little bit and let it coast to whatever lane it wants to. Like he's never out of control, that never happens. Even in that pain where it feels like, I think you're punishing me for nothing, what are you doing? And these thoughts and emotions run through us even in those moments, you have to know God's there. You have to know that he cares. You have to. He cares about the big and the little. It doesn't matter what it is. If you're a little boy and your dog died this week, he cares. If your business is frustrating the fire out of you and you're in the red and it feels like you're not going to be able to get it back into the black, he cares. If your schedule's out of control, if it seems like you're failing at, at your own family, he cares about all of that. Don't the disciples learn this? When they're in the ship and the storm comes and Jesus is asleep and they wake him up and Jesus, they say, Master, carest thou not that we perish? Jesus, don't you care about us? Sure he does. He's there. He cares. And you, you have to, have to, have to know that. Fourth and lastly is the pattern principle. And the beauty of what Peter said that we can be thankful if we endure hardship and grief and all these things, even when we have a good conscience towards God, the beauty of that is that we don't have to reinvent the wheel. We actually have a pattern in Jesus. You just look at Jesus. Like when you want to know how to do this, you look at the life of Jesus because Peter wrote that verse in 1 Peter 2, verse 19, and then he says directly after that, here's what he says, For even hereunto were ye called, you were called to be thankful in suffering. I don't know if if anyone ever told you that when you came to faith, and perhaps you feel like that's a bait and switch, but that's the reality. Christians are called to suffer gladly, to be suffering sojourners. You're called to this because, how could we be called to this? Well, because Christ also suffered for us, and he left us an example that ye should follow in his steps. What would you say? Remember Jesus? Well, there's an example of a guy who did no wrong, who had a perfect heart, who said everything right, did everything right, and life wasn't a cakewalk, was it? I'm pretty sure he got hung on a cross for it. Isn't there Jesus? Look at his example of this. Verse 22, who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not. How in the world did Jesus do that? That they mock him and, and, they, and they beat him and they scourge him and he suffers, but yet he doesn't lash out at them. He doesn't get vindictive. He doesn't call the angels to come wipe them out. He doesn't take his authority. He doesn't take He, he takes it. The, the Bible tells us that he endures the cross, despising the shame, but he, he actually rejoices in it. Like, how do you do that? Well, it tells us very clearly. But he committed himself to him that judges righteously. In those moments where Jesus is suffering wrongfully, pain and hurt and persecution that come his way, even though he didn't deserve it, he committed himself unto him that judges righteously. What that means is, he said, the Father knows best. He's a better judge than I am. He's a better sorter out of what's going to be right and what's going to be wrong, and I'm going to trust in him, right? doesn't it kind of make sense that our hearts would be there? When we have things happen that we don't think should, wasn't according to plan, right? 2020, like that's the whole year. When that comes our way, there's a tendency in all of us to shake our head or perhaps even shake our fist and to say, God, why would you? You could have changed this. You could have arranged it differently. Why would you let this happen to me? And what we are confessing in that moment is, God, I didn't have the power to change this. I didn't have the power to arrange this. I didn't have the power to, to set the deck, but you do. You're bigger than me, stronger than me, more powerful than me. You could have changed this if you wanted to, right? Would it not make sense that if he was bigger and stronger and could arrange all that where you couldn't, that he's also wiser, If he's bigger and stronger, doesn't he also have to be wiser? So in that moment, you should be able to say, Lord, I commit myself to you. Whether good or bad comes my way, I commit myself to you because I trust that you're wiser than me and that you will judge righteously. That you'll sort it out. Some of you, I know a little bit of the pain that's in your life. I know the loved ones you've lost this year. I know the heartache that's come your way. I know the struggle that's been this year. I'm sure, though, I know a fraction of the pain and hurt that is in this room right now. Some of you are looking forward to the holiday seasons, and you cannot wait. It's like, this will just be, it'll be warm, cheery, fuzzy sentiment. It'll be awesome. Some of you are dreading it, because it's going to be a tough time. How do you be thankful in that? How do, how do you have a heart of gratitude and burst with praise to God even in those moments where it's not easy to give your, your thanksgiving and your praise at the Thanksgiving table? You want to say, Thanks for nothing, God. How do you do that? Well, you have to understand what I think Joseph understood. It's not always a punishment. It's not always that you did wrong. Sometimes it's just suffering, and you've got to know that suffering is never for nothing and that he's there with you and that he cares for you and that ultimately Jesus is a perfect example of this who went through the same thing, and you should be willing to as well. So my challenge to you is to advance him to thankfulness. Some of you have lived through enough suffering and you've lived through enough life. When those negatives come, you say, I've, "I've, same song, second verse. I've been here before. And I know that he's gonna work it out and I, know, I, I can trust in him and I can naturally give him thanks in advance for what he's gonna do. Others of you, that's very difficult and it doesn't come natural, but choose to trust him and choose even in these moments to say, Lord, I, I, don't, I can't see the future. I don't know what's happening. I thought my health issues would have been over 10 years ago, but they're still not. But Lord, even in that, I can tell you thank you. I I count it an honor to suffer for your name. I count it a privilege to be able to bear your resemblance and to live like you lived. And I'm gonna tell you thank you even in those moments. Pray with me if you would here this morning. I want you right now as you bow your heads just to talk to the Lord. And I want you to know that if you're in a time right now of abandonment or pain or hurt or frustration, that he has a message for you today. It's, It's a message of, love that he loves you that he has a future for you that he has a plan for you that he wants to teach you something in this time if you'll have a sensitive trusting heart and if you're struggling with this to be grateful or thankful or maybe you're being thankful for 90 percent, but there's that 10